Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, we're kind of shifting to a different portion of this scripture. We've been talking about kind of the, uh, the rules for the disciple makers, how they're supposed to go out and, and wage war, the marching orders, you could call them. We've been talking about the marching orders from verse chapter 10, verse 5, all the way down to verse 15. And now we kind of begin a new paragraph here. And this paragraph is more or less going to give us the lay of the field. It's going to show us what the battlefield looks like. What they can expect as they go out doing the will of their Messiah and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So we've had our marching orders. Now Jesus is giving a snapshot of the actual battlefield. He's putting out the table. He's, putting, he's setting the terrain. He's putting the, the little pieces on the board and showing us the lay of the land, what it looks like, what can you expect when you go out there to go and do my work. I'm going to read this passage here that we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 16, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He starts by saying, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and their Gentiles, and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and guidance as we look at your scriptures. I pray that we would see your will. pray that we would see your desire. I pray for willing hearts, for myself and for the hearers. I pray that we would stand and consecrate ourselves for the work of God. That we would rise from our own doings, from our own comings and goings. And that we would take upon ourselves the coming and go, comings and goings of Jesus Christ. And that His ways would be our ways. That we would walk in the footsteps of Jesus. To do the things that He did. To do the things that He has told us to do. Lord, give us hearts of devotion. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we've, the last few weeks, we've looked from verses 5 down to verses 15. And, and in a way, these marching orders that Jesus gave us in that previous paragraph could be easily romanticized. For instance, the marching orders, we could summarize them as... Um, Jesus has told the disciples who to go to. He has told the disciples that He has given them 
His power and His authority so that they can go and do the things that Jesus Himself has done. He has given them the manuscript to proclaim to people. They don't even have to make up the message on their own. He has ensured them that they will never lack any necessities as long as they are doing His will. And He has given them instructions to stay with worthy and respectable people who are likely to receive the message. Now I remember going to Bible college. Bible college was hard, okay? But many of us Bible students who are preparing to go into pastoral ministry or evangelistic ministry or the mission field or, or something similar, in college... You can easily romanticize the mission ahead of you. To think that, to just get all pumped, all excited that this is going to be great. We're going to go win people for Christ. We're going to go change the world. We're going to, you know, just proclaim the Word of God. We get to spend so many hours a week just studying the Word of God. This is going to be great. And then you get into the ministry. You go out on the mission field. You get on the evangelistic field on the road. And you realize how hard things are. (laughs) you realize that there are a lot of bumps in the road. That there are a lot of hardships while you're doing this. And you can lose heart. The last statistic I read said that the average pastor drops out of the ministry within the first five years. Because he just gets overwhelmed by all of the obstacles because probably previous to entering into actual ministry, He had a romanticized perspective of what it was going to be like. And it just did not meet up to his expectations. And we can do that as disciples of Jesus Christ and think that, you know what? We have the power of Christ. We have the message of the gospel. The word is here. The spirit teaches us. He has told us how to go out. He has told us what to say. He has given us assurities that we'll never lack a thing that we need. Man, this sounds great. (laughs) I'm not sure that based off of these details that anybody would be afraid to go out and be a disciple maker for Jesus Christ. It sounds great. It's like if I were to give you a road map and I were to tell you, oh, on this map, I'm going to mark, mark your journey, take these routes, take, the, take these roads, here's your destination. I've already set up everything you need along the way. You have access, I'll give you my corporate credit card. You can use it whenever you need, when you, whenever you need something, whenever you need to fill up. I've already, set the, I've already pointed out the hotels you'll stay in. Just use your credit card. Use that to pay for things. And just go get to the destination. Sounds pretty great, right? It sounds pretty straightforward, simple. Yeah, so this is going to be awesome. But then, what if I told you that on the way, you're going to be robbed cheated, rejected, raped, lied to, sued, and maybe even murdered. Does that sound great now? (laughs) Does that sound like a journey that you still want to take? At first, when the instructions were just being given, sounded like a piece of cake. But now, when the lay of the field is given, it doesn't sound like a piece of cake anymore. Because now you can see what you're going to be having to go through while you're fulfilling these instructions. (laughs) See, the instructions in the battlefield are different. Boot camp for battle is hard. I've never been through it. (laughs) Okay, but I know from what I've heard that it is excruciatingly hard. But the battlefield is where you lose your life. 
You don't typically lose your life. You don't typically see yourself as being in a lot of danger when you're in boot camp. Though you get hurt here and there, whatever. But the battlefield is where the real war is waged. The battlefield is where you can lose an arm, a leg, an eye, your life. But that's also what boot camp was all about. The only reason you go to boot camp is because it's preparing you for war. Well, some, some people go to boot camp because they, they just want somebody to pay their college education. <laughs> Not because they really want to go to war, but that's essentially what it's for. College, Bible college, it's for training you, equipping you so that you can go out into the battlefield of ministry. <laughs> but nobody ever teaches you in Bible school to not feel hurt by oppressors, how to deal with persecution, how to deal with hard, hard people, how to deal with people leaving the church, how to deal with false teaching. You know, they tell you what the true teaching is and how to interpret scripture and things like that, but actually how to pastor. Nobody, you know, I didn't learn that in college. I just learned how to interpret the scriptures. <laughs> really? And this is essentially the first section that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. It's the instructions. Yeah, I can learn these things. I can follow these instructions, so to speak. They're going to be hard. It's not like it's easy, per se, to go out and do these things. But now we're looking at the battlefield, and now we're really getting to the point where we decide, do I actually want to be a disciple of Jesus and follow Him and to do what He has told me to do? Because now he's, he's not mincing words here from verse 16 on. He's not hiding things from us. He is giving us a very vivid picture of what it's going to be like. A lot of people, we attend church, we're satisfied to simply attend and participate here and there in intra or interchurch functions. Because these things are reasonably safe compared to the environment of a gospel-claiming, gospel-proclaiming disciple. A gospel-proclaiming disciple who is going out, making disciples as Jesus has instructed us, finds himself in dangerous, uncomfortable environments where you have to cross lots of pain lines, like we've talked about in previous afternoon services. This does not discount, I do not want anybody to feel ashamed for the work that has been done in the church, okay? But our togetherness, our oneness as a church body and the things that we get to do together, it's a valid part of our lives, but it's a valid part of our lives. There are other parts of our lives that Jesus has called us to engage in. And here, we're looking at disciples making disciples being another part that Jesus wants us to engage in with our lives. And that's what we, are, what we are going to discuss today is really what comes down to the reason that we must walk by faith and not by sight. Because we can look at some of these instructions and be like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. But then we actually go out and start doing the work and realize everything is not all straightforward. I mean, every, anybody who's ever worked a job, you know, 
you know, anybody who's ever farmed, okay, farming, I just got to get on my tractor, I got to go out and plow the fields, I got to go out and plant the seeds. Oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? Right, Darren? It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> but then something breaks down, something doesn't work properly, the, or whatever, I don't even know what all the problems are that you guys run into. <laughs> but things come up, and it's not straightforward anymore, and now you actually have to be resourceful and think about, think these things through, get advice, all these types of things, because at first it seemed, oh yeah, this is going to be a straightforward day, all I got to do is go out and drive this tractor through the field, let it do its thing, and I'll be good. <laughs> That's not usually how things go. Things always tend to happen in whatever workplace you find yourself in. Things come up that, you, that are hard, that you have to deal with, that are unexpected. And the same is true about the disciple maker. First of all, verse 16. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Right from the very get-go, he says, Behold, listen, listen to this. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. All right. <laughs> what kind of image does that give? If a literal sheep finds itself in the middle of a pack of wolves, what happens? A great mauling. <laughs> right? Bloodshed. Bones being ripped apart. And Jesus introduces the battlefield by saying, Behold, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Usually, if you have a flock of sheep, there might be a wolf or a couple wolves coming by trying to pick off sheep. You have a wolf in the midst of sheep. Okay? With a shepherd trying to protect them or whatnot. But here he's saying you are a sheep in the midst of wolves. It's not just, you know, you are one sheep finding yourself surrounded by a pack of wolves. And we know what wolves do to sheep. They maul them. We are the minority, Jesus is saying. We are a sheep, a minority sheep amongst the majority wolves. If, if everything was left to sight, what would happen to all the sheep? If everything just worked out according to the natural order, and you have a, you have a small group of a small flock of sheep being surrounded by multitudes of 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 uh, wolves, what is reasonably going to happen? All of those sheep are going to get destroyed and eaten and devoured, and that's literally what one could expect if God was not on our side. Remember what God said about. Israel, I called you out as the littlest among the nations. You had no power within yourself. And basically, he was trying to paint a picture that you only exist because I'm with you. If I was not with you, you would have been wiped out centuries ago. You would not be here just like all these other nations that used to be there early in the Old Testament, but they're not there anymore. They're not around anymore because they've been consumed by other nations. And that's reasonably what a person could expect an Israelite could have expected if God had not been with them. They would have been consumed by all the surrounding nations. They would have been utterly destroyed just because of the temperature of how things worked back in that day. We would not know of Hebrews, Hebrew people. There would not be an Israel if God had not been with them throughout the course of their history. Even to this day, most of the surrounding countries where they live hate them. It would be reasonable to expect them to be wiped out. 
And essentially that's what we're looking at here when he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If God is not on our side, if God's power is not going with us, if God's protection is not going with us, we can be expected to be completely and utterly destroyed. And he's telling this to these 12 disciples here. He's telling this to his disciples who are a few who actually believe in Jesus, so to speak, at this point in his ministry as much as they can. And they're supposed to be going out throughout the whole nation of Israel Spreading the, spreading the message that the Messiah is here. We have the one that you've all been looking for. And he's telling them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. We'll look through verses 11. And he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace of God, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he starts out by saying, humble yourselves. Okay, it's not about you. It's not about you and your strength. You are humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He is the one who will lift you up. Okay, he starts with like this. You're casting your anxieties on him because there's not really anything you can do about it. He is on your side. He will hold you up. He will strengthen you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, okay? Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who is it that he devours? Those who are not walking in the strength of God by faith. There are many people sitting in church pews who are devoured because they think that they don't need the power of God in their lives. They believe good doctrine. They have made a profession of faith. They get involved in various safe activities that require no faith whatsoever. But they are sitting there being mauled and they don't even know it. Because they don't walk in the power of God. Being devoured does not always look like falling into gross immorality. Being mauled by the devil often simply looks like somebody who's not actually having any fruitfulness in their life whatsoever. Isn't that not the goal of the devil? To make God's people unfruitful? Because if they're unfruitful, the gospel cannot go forth. The gospel is not going forth if a person is unfruitful. Everything that Jesus is teaching His disciples to do in Matthew chapter 10 is not happening in the life of a person who has been mauled and devoured by the devil. You can believe everything that you want to believe. You can claim all the right doctrines. You can be properly catechized. All these types of things. You may not be living in any gross immorality. 
But if you are not walking in the footsteps of Jesus, according to the commands of Jesus, you have been mauled by the devil. He has devoured you. He has made you unfruitful because you do not humble yourself before God. You do not walk by faith. You do not go out following Jesus by faith. You are living a life that requires no faith whatsoever. Even the way you work, it's, so that you, it's because you feel like you need to achieve some manner of expectation with God. You do not live your light. You do not even recognize a salvation by faith. Because everything that you're doing in church, by even coming to church, is because you're trying to make something of yourself. Rather than by faith, believing that God has made something of you by the blood of Christ. That is hard. That takes humility. We all want to think highly of ourselves by working hard, by doing good. We want to meet expectations so that we can feel valuable. When walking by faith requires us to believe that all the value that I need is in Christ. It's in Christ. And when we are mauled and devoured by Satan, we start thinking, or it's because we have started thinking, that I can make something of myself. I need to make something of myself. I need to make a name for myself. I need to stand up for myself. Even though Christ didn't even stand up for himself. But we think that we need to stand up for ourselves. Christ could have stood up for himself. He had every right to do so, but he didn't. But yet we live our lives thinking that we need to make something of ourselves. That is the opposite of walking by faith. And that is what happens. That is what, those are the type of people who Satan devours. Even though they're still sitting in our pews, looking like pretty good members, they give faithfully, they get involved in various areas, but they're not actually doing the things that Christ told us to do. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. And just to give you an example here, okay, there, was a, there were a couple of times, I was a photographer in Chicagoland when I was living up there. I was a wedding photographer. And there were a couple of times when I was reached out to by homosexuals or, or trans you know, people to, to do a wedding for them. And according to my convictions, I had to tell them no, but I didn't feel like it was enough to just tell them no. I had to share the gospel with them. I had to tell them no, and I had to tell them why. Graciously, peacefully, but I had to tell them, you know what? You know, you know I, didn't, I don't remember exactly what I told them, but I tried to lay the gospel out as simply, as concisely, and as mercifully as I could in my rejection of their, of their business. And you know what? In the, in the flavor of our of our political structure right now, they could have sued me for that. They could have taken me to court for something like that. But I felt I had to do it for the sake of the gospel. And thanks be to God, they never sued me. I never heard another word from them again. One of them actually did reply and said, well, thank you for, um, for, your, uh, for your prompt response. We wish you well, that kind of a thing. They were very nice about it. The other people, they didn't respond at all. You know, at any point, I could have just, just been anxious, been anxious. Are they going to sue me? Are they going to sue me? Are things in the works right now? But it's just, you have to go be a disciple. 
You have to go take a stand for Jesus Christ and put his name out there when it could hurt you. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What is the shadow of death? It's that shadow of something lurking over you that could consume you. There's something there that could destroy you. You can see its shadow upon you. And you're walking underneath that shadow where it could fall on you and destroy you at any moment. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What was his confidence? He was walking by faith. He did not, I mean, David, strong-armed warrior. I mean, he could stand up to most things that we, you and I could not stand up to. But he does not say, oh, the Lord has given me power and strength. And he, he just simply says, you are with me. You are with me. I walk by faith. I could die at any moment. I mean, he could probably recollect most of his life as he's writing this. You know, through his experiences with Saul, his experience with Goliath, with that lion and that bear, all these different things that could have easily taken his life and have taken many lives before him. But yet he's still alive and he recognizes it by, because, it's by the, the, because of the, the simple presence of God that he is still not consumed. And there should be elements of our life where we can say that, that I could be consumed right now. Because I am putting myself out there for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet I'm not because the Lord is with me. I'm walking by faith. I am saying things that need to be said, even though it could hurt me, could bite me. But the Lord has protected me. And some people, some people do lose their lives. Does that mean the Lord is not with them? Well, let's keep reading here in this passage. He says, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay? So he's not saying you need to go out looking for trouble. And if trouble finds you, that you just need to lay on your back and take the trouble. Because he's saying you need to be wise as serpents. He says you are not supposed to bow down to trouble. And actually in verse 23, if you look at chapter 10, verse 23, he says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he's giving them permission. If somebody is coming to try to persecute you, you can flee. Be wise. Try to gauge whether you should stay or whether you should go because of the persecution. Okay? So he's not saying that we should just receive the persecution without trying to act wisely to avoid the persecution. We can try to avoid the persecution. And he said, you know, the goal here, the reason why he is saying that we can avoid the persecution rather than just bowing to it, because we have to have a goal here. The goal has to be set for why we're doing what we're doing. The goal has to be set for the proclamation of the good news that the Savior is here, and you cannot proclaim the good news if you're dead. People that you are going to minister to cannot be ministered to by a dead person. What is the priority here? The priority here is not to be a martyr. The priority here is not to go around and tell all your friends how much suffering you've endured for Christ. The priority here is to go out and tell the good news to people who are lost and going to hell. 
and tell them that there's a Savior, a Redeemer. The priority is to go to sinners who need to be saved by grace. That is why we must be wise as serpents, not for our own self-preservation, but for the proclamation of the gospel. He says, be innocent as doves at the same time. What you are protecting is not your own life, but rather the message of the gospel. We are not to seek to prolong our life. You are prolonging your ability to send out the gospel. What he's saying here by being innocent as doves, while also being wise as serpents, is that we are not, the priority is for the gospel. We are to do nothing for the sake of our own lives that would compromise the testimony of Christ. So the priority, whether we're being wise and trying to flee temptation so that we can prolong our ability to spread the gospel, the same priority is there for why we need to be innocent as doves. Because if we defile ourselves in the pursuit of self-preservation, well, we have also defiled the message of the gospel. So we are not to do anything for the sake of self-preservation that would compromise the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's why we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Because the priority is the gospel. We want to take the gospel as much as we can, as far as we can. But we also don't want to ensure the ensure the longevity of our lives by doing things that would compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ. Our first, the thing, that we re, the thing that we do first should not be reaching for a gun, okay? There's, there are situations out there where that's probably fine to do, but that should not be our first desire to go and reach for a gun to preserve our lives, Okay? The first thing we ought to be doing is kneeling in prayer. The first thing we ought to be doing is fleeing. The first thing we ought to be doing is something like that. We should not be doing things that compromise the purity of the gospel that we are proclaiming to the world. We are not supposed, our first priority is to not cause harm so that we can prevent harm to ourselves. Though, like I said, there are probably situations where that would be appropriate. But that is not our go-to. Our go-to is the strong arm of God. Not the strong arm of the law. Not the strong arm of your Smith and Wesson. It's the strong arm of God who is with you. Okay? Verse 17. He goes on to say, Beware of men, (laughs) for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So I I just like how he begins this verse 17. Beware of men. Isn't that the problem? Men. People. (laughs) The whole reason these instructions get really hard when we actually start performing the will of God is because people are involved. (laughs) Isn't that what makes everything hard? When people start getting involved? You know, every once in a while I tell Kristen, man, parenting would be so much easier if, if it wasn't for these kids. (laughs) <laughs> the hard thing about parenting is the children that you're parenting. <laughs> but you can't be a parent without the children. You can't be a disciple of Christ without the disciple-making of Christ. You can't be a disciple-maker without hard people. It's going to happen. Hard people are going to be in your life ruining things, messing things up, causing pain and strife and division. 
<laughs> Look at Romans chapter 3. I mean, this is, this is describing the people that we're supposed to go to. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And not to mention, this is describing the general state of mankind. Okay? But remember, this is, these are the people that we're supposed to go and proclaim the gospel to because this is the type of person that needs the gospel, which was us. But now it is also those that we're going to. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Nobody understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound like tillable land? Does that sound like a land that's going to produce much harvest? Does that sound like a great audience? But those are the people that we're called to go and minister to. The people that sound like that. The people that look like that. Why do you think it's hard? Because that's what people are. People are not hard because you are saying the gospel in the wrong way. You might be. There are ways. You know, we need to show some tact. Okay. But generally speaking, people do not respond with hostility because you were wrong. People generally respond with hostility because that's who they are. What we just read. That's our mission field. People are hard. That's why Jesus starts the beginning of verse 17 by saying, Beware of men. Now, I want you to say here, I want you to notice here for a second, he says, because they will, okay, beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts, they will flog you in synagogues, they will, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Did these things happen during this episode? Okay. Um, in Luke's parallel um, passage here, in Luke chapter 10, okay, they, re- they came back from this expedition rejoicing. They did not come back telling Jesus all the hardships that they had endured. They were not dragged before the governors. They were not dragged in front of people. They were not brought to death. This is actually, in a sense, prophetic, because these things do not actually come to pass immediately for these disciples. Calvin kind of explains this apparent inconsistency with the notion that Christ, while he was with his disciples in person, he kind of treats the disciples as guests rather than as family. Right? When you have a guest over, the guest gets to receive all the benefits of your hospitality, whereas the family members have to do all the work preparing and cleaning and setting up and tearing down and all those types of things. You don't expect your guests to do those things. But we expect our family to help with those things when we're showing hospitality. So in a sense, Calvin is kind of saying this is what's going on while Jesus is here on the earth. The disciples were actually, actually got to receive a lot, most of the benefits. They got to experience a romanticized version of disciple-making while Jesus was with them during this episode. But when Jesus leaves, now they're counted as family. 
Now they get to endure the things that Christ endured. Now they get to drink the cup that Christ drank, the cup of suffering. Because now they're family. Because now, first they were training, they were in training. Okay, when I was, when I was a, uh, an apprentice, so to speak, at a church before, you know, right after college, you know, I got to be trained by a pastor. I got to pre- preach and do some of the, these fun things, but I never had to deal with all the sticky, hard relational issues that the pastor had to deal with. Because I wasn't really the pastor, okay? I was just an apprentice. I, got to, I was going through training, and he would kind of talk to me about some sticky situations, but I never had to actually deal with it myself because I was just lear- I was learning. I was a disciple, okay? I was an apprentice, okay? But the pastor, he had to deal with all those sticky situations. And in a way here, Jesus is saying, or Jesus is prophesying to them what things will be like for the disciples after he's gone and the Spirit comes upon you. Because then, because remember the, the Spirit was upon Christ while He was on the earth doing these things. Then, the Spirit was not in the disciples. The Spirit came upon the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Then the Spirit came down upon them. Then the real persecution happened. Then the real hardship started happening. But they could now endure them because the Spirit was within them. The same Spirit that was within Christ was within them. So that now they had the power to go through it. They had the power to have faith in God because of the Holy Spirit that was within them, sustaining them. Beware of men because men are hard, men are cruel, men are wicked. And that is who you're going to. You're going, taking this very impossible message to wicked, carnal people that can only see what's in front of them. And will probably reject you. But that is the whole reason why Jesus sends out his disciples is because those wicked carnal men need the gospel. We can't just sit back and talk about how the whole world is wicked and how we're not, you know, in our comfortable positions here at church. You know, the whole world just needs Jesus. But then we sit back here and we never actually share Jesus. Jesus also says the world is wicked and needs my saving grace, but he also sends people into the world to give them his saving grace because he has compassion on them because currently they are like lost sheep without a shepherd. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22 and 23. Paul writes, To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them and its blessings. Our perspective for our time here in this world ought to be going out to by all means save some. Not everybody is going to be saved, but some of them... Some of them might be. So that's why we endure all things. That's why we engage everyone. The hard people and the ready people. Because by all means, some of them might be saved, but all of them we know for sure need to be saved. And the only thing that's going to save them is Jesus Christ. Coming to church is not going to save them. Reforming their life is not going to save them. Jesus Christ is going to save them. 
And we need to take them this message of Jesus Christ, who alone is their Savior. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them these other people and its blessings. I want to bring them in to the family of God. I want to bring them from being a Romans chapter 3 person to being somebody who is a, who is a, a, a prince of God, a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, someone who has been redeemed and saved by the grace of God. That's why we do these things. That's why we go out as disciples, be making disciples. Because I cannot, I should enjoy my salvation. I must take great delight in the forgiveness and the redemption that I have received in Christ Jesus. But I am selfish to sit here and think that I don't need to go and take it to somebody else. Somebody else can do that. That's selfish. That's full of pride. That lacks faith. It lacks zeal for Jesus and His gospel. We must have ready lips. We must have ready lips. Look at verse 18 in Matthew chapter 10. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you should speak or what you should say. Okay, but for, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So in a sense here, he, okay, he tells them what to proclaim. He says in verse 7, Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gives them the general idea for what they are to say, but he also tells them, you're going to be dragged one day in front of courts. You're going to be set in front of people to give, to give a testimony for why you're doing what you're doing. And he's saying, don't be worried. God will give you what you need to say in front of that crowd. It's a captive, unsaved audience filled with these wicked people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that moment, God cares about those people more than even you do. So don't you think that God's going to make sure that they hear a good message? Because God cares about them more than you do. You want to proclaim a good message, but even more so, God wants them to hear the pure, true message. So why are we worried? God wants them to hear the good message of the good news of Jesus Christ. God will see to it that you deliver the message that they need to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be done here shortly, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what part of this activity is our part and what part of this activity is God's part? God is doing everything here. Okay, All this is from God who through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God not counting their trespasses against them. God entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. God is doing all of this. From cover to cover, God is doing all of this. It is not you doing the work of the ministry. It is not me up here doing the work of the ministry. It is God doing it through us. God is the one who cares about the world. 
God is the one who sent Jesus into the world to save the world. He's the one with the, the overwhelming compassion and desire for the world to be saved. He's the one with that. The effect, he's the one with the effective power to save and to heal the nations. You are not the ones with the effectual power to save and heal the nations. God is. So when we go out, it is God making his appeal through us. We have nothing to claim. It's not even our message. We are saying God's message. When I stand up here and proclaim to you, I am fully aware that I am telling you what the Bible says. As much as I know it, I may not understand everything rightly. I, I know I don't understand everything rightly or fully. But as far as I know, what I am telling you is what the Bible says. Because that's the only message that's worth being proclaimed. I am not, not up here giving you political advice. I am not giving you um, relational advice. There are some pastors that are really good at doing that and tying it to the scriptures and all these types of things, but that is not my forte. The only thing that I know how to do is tell you, walk you through a passage and kind of help you interpret it <laughs> and see what it says and try to just together compel each other to do what it says. That's all I really feel called to do. When I'm coming, when I approach the scriptures, when I approach this pulpit, all I really feel equipped to do is open the scriptures, help you walk through the scriptures, see what it says, see what it means, and see what it's compelling me to actually do for, because of it. That's all I'm trying to do up here. Why? Because the message isn't even mine. Whatever message that we're preaching from the scriptures, it's not even our message, it's God's. The only thing that we really need to care about is what God thinks. I may be wrong about a lot of stuff. But as long as you are disagreeing with me, because you can see here that that's not actually what the Scripture is saying, feel free to disagree with me. Because, all, because if I can accomplish one thing in this church, it is that you find the authority to be in the Scriptures and not in the pulpit. That you can find the authority to be here in the person of Jesus Christ and His teachings and not in the teachings of a person. And if that causes you to disagree with me, well, I will rejoice with you that you are placing yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. But if you are going to place yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ, you must do what he says. Otherwise, he's not really an authority to you. That's where liberalism comes from, is when we just disagree because it doesn't work for us. We don't really plan on obeying what's here. We just like to have an opinion about it. That's not, that's not finding authority in Scripture. Authority in Scripture sees what the Bible says, sees what Jesus has said, and then we go and do it, and we go and follow it, and we believe it. We can talk all we want about believing in the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, sola script, scriptura. I'm, I'm a little rusty on my Latin. <laughs> we can say all we want about that Reformed doctrine, about the Scriptures being our only authority for faith and practice, but if we don't actually do what it says when we see it saying something for us to do, we don't actually believe it. I have to rebuke myself for that all the time. Because there are plenty of things in Scripture here that I see that are hard for me to, to grapple with. And I, my natural inclination is to try to think, okay, well, how could it not mean that? <laughs> but I have to take Scripture for what Scripture is, not try to sidetrack it so that, it, so that I can excuse myself <laughs> from having to follow something that is clear, okay? No, if I find the Scripture to be my authority, I must do what it says. And where we fall short, 
we understand that there is grace from God, but not grace that we get to take advantage of on a regular basis and just say, well, God will overlook that. God will cover that with his grace. I can't be perfect. That's not really recognizing the authority of Scripture either. That's recognizing and walking according to the lusts of our own flesh. We must look at the Scriptures and follow it and recognize that this is God's message to the world and we must go out and give that to other people. And in Matthew chapter, just to close here with these last couple of verses in this passage, in verses 21 and 22, it says in Matthew chapter 10, Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. How would you like to have your son or your daughter one day call you up and say, I'm sending the cops over to your house. They are going to come and throw you in prison because you are a Christian and because you have talked to me about the gospel and you deserve to be thrown in jail and executed. Verse 22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Persecution keeps the gospel going. Even though that persecution comes from your own family, persecution keeps the gospel going. It is okay to be persecuted. It is okay to flee because those are the wheels that keep the gospel going from house to house, city to city, country to country. From the very beginning, persecution was the engine that kept the gospel fluid, moving, in motion, going from place to place. When, we, when there is no persecution, the gospel stagnates. The gospel starts to morph and transform into things that it's not because people just get comfortable in their own lazy lusts and try to form a Jesus in their own image. But you talk to people from a different country where there's lots of persecution. The gospel is very straightforward and very simple. It's first world countries where we're all kind of comfortable in our pews where things get complicated and we disagree on all these little things and we start different churches because of all these different little details and all this type of stuff. That's what happens in first world countries. This type of thing does not happen in third world countries where there's persecution because people care about the gospel. People don't care about their own lusts and their own preferences where the gospel is everything to them and the power of God and faith in Jesus Christ is everything to them. Matthew chapter 16, if you'll just look there real quick, verse 27, it says, well, let's look at verse 24, start in verse 24, and we'll end with this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains, his whole, gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And just listen to those words. If anyone, I'm not just saying like the really serious ones, the really serious Christians, the really serious disciple makers. He's saying if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to follow him? To walk, to put your feet in the footsteps, in the dust, where he went with his cross. If I were to tell you at the point of your conversion, you're going to die. 
Okay, that's just what happens in this world. If you convert over to Christianity, if you profess faith in Christ, you're going to die. How many people would still continue to seek after Christ? You are going to die because of Jesus. You'll be drawn and quartered. You'll be gutted. You'll be mauled. One of those things is going to happen to you. Do you still want to follow Jesus? Okay, because following after coming after Jesus, receiving Jesus, and becoming a disciple is to follow Jesus. It's not just to pray some prayer and then rely on that prayer. It's to rely on Jesus. It's to rely on Jesus. And to rely on Jesus is to come after him. To be like David, a man who's after God's own heart, who's been transformed into the image of Christ, who is coming after the image of Christ. It's all one cycle. Whoever would save his life will lose it. See, this is one of those other things about being mauled by the devil and you don't even know it. Why? All you're trying to do is save your life. All you're trying to do is protect your bubble to enhance your kingdom, to make things work out for you. That is a person who has been mauled by the devil. Whoever will save his life will lose it. See, this is even... I don't need... you know. We look down upon people who will say, no, I no longer believe in Jesus because I don't want to die. How is that any worse than I don't want to actually follow Jesus because I don't want to sacrifice my ambitions? It's the same. It's just a different degree of the same heart. It's just a different experience for the same type of person. What will it profit a man? He even brings profit into it. Profit a man if he gains the whole world, okay? And forfeit his soul. A lot of souls are forfeited simply because people are trying to gain for themselves, to build themselves, to make something of themselves. That forfeits a soul more than premarital sex, being addicted to drugs. Those people, I mean, remember who, who are the people who are constantly crying at Jesus' feet? The harlots. <laughs> Tax collectors, sinners, those are the people who are receiving grace and mercy. The people who were not receiving grace and mercy were the people who simply wanted to make something of themselves. Because it's all about them. It's all about gaining their life. What will he gain? Will he gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. God is looking at your life, seeing if it accords with the gospel that you are saying, that's coming out of your mouth, the profession that you've made. You say you're following Jesus. Okay, now let's see if you're actually following Jesus. The actuality has to match the claim, okay, if it's going to be true. Otherwise, you're a liar. The actuality of your life, the following of Jesus, has to come with claiming Jesus. Otherwise, the claiming of Jesus is null and void. So today we're looking here at what, it, what, what the play, what the, what the field looks like. We're looking at this gospel 
battlefield. It's not easy, but it must be engaged if we are truly a disciple who is actually following Jesus. Let us keep this in heart and in our minds. Let us make this a matter of prayer that we might step out in faith and do the things that Christ has told us to do. Not just say we believe what's here, but believe it enough to believe that this actually has an authority over me. Therefore, I must do it. Because I am his servant. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Let us bow our knee to the Father above in the name of Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, forgive me for how I have fallen short in keeping and holding to the commands of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would take heed to the things that are said in your word and that we would not fall short any longer but that by your grace and by your spirit we may rise and that we might take the gospel to those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen.